Welcome to Seeking Jesus, a podcast for Latter-day Saints focused on learning all we can about Jesus Christ. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash seekingjesus. When I was 15 years old, I went to a youth conference at BYU. I met tons of great people and had a wonderful time. But there was one snag. At the beginning of the week, the counselor told our group that if any of us lost our room key, we would have to pay a $50 fine. During the week, at a giant dance at BYU's Wilkinson Center, I lost my key. I was so stressed. I had no money to pay a fine. I prayed and got a warm feeling that things would work out. I searched everywhere with no luck. After the dance, I waited outside my dorm room so that my roommate could let me in. When he arrived, I told him what had happened. No way, he said. I found a key on the dance floor tonight. Let's see if it's yours. And it was. What were the odds of my roommate finding my key in a dance attended by more than a thousand teenagers? To me, this was a miracle. Jesus Christ specializes in miracles. He has performed more miracles than can ever be told. The gospel authors recount about 37 discrete miracles, depending on how you count, and you can see a complete list on the course website. Per page, Mark shares more miracles than any other gospel author, but Luke, which you remember is the longest gospel account, contains the most miracles in total. One way to approach Christ's miracles is to view them in different categories. The Savior performed at least 19 healing miracles and nine nature miracles, like calming a storm or walking on the water. There are at least seven exorcisms, and it's interesting to note that these occur only in the synoptic gospels. The fourth category of miracles is raising the dead, which happens three times. Today, we'll look at some miracles from each of these categories. As with many topics in this course, this is just an overview. We could obviously have multiple classes or even a whole course focused on the miracles of Jesus. Let's begin with a healing miracle. To get some background, turn with me to Leviticus. For most of us, Leviticus is a lesser-known portion of the scriptures. But remember, in Jesus' time, Leviticus was not the Old Testament, it was the current testament and the current law. In Leviticus 13, we read the law concerning lepers. The person who has a leprous disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head be disheveled, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. According to the contemporary law, if you had leprosy, you must wear clothes designating to others that you have it. If someone approaches you, you must shout out that you're a leper. Why is this the case? In Leviticus 5, we learn that if you touch anything that's unclean, then you become unclean. In fact, if an unclean person touches something, that thing becomes unclean. And then if you touch that same item, you become unclean. To some Jews at the time of Jesus, it was very important to maintain what is called ritual purity, which some considered to be a type of holiness. If you touched a leper or even something he had touched, then you would become ritually impure and have to go through a series of washings or other steps to become ritually pure again. Take that background and bring it to Mark chapter 1. This is one of the first miracles that Mark records. In verse 40, a leper approached Jesus. Think about how bold that leper is. He shouldn't even be coming near Jesus, right? He should be isolated. But he comes to Jesus, kneels before him, and says, If you choose, you can make me clean. Consider the faith in that comment, if you choose. In other words, I know you can do it. It's just, will you choose to do it or not? 
Jesus was moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. I want to highlight the phrase, Jesus touched him. Does Jesus have the power to heal a leper without touching him? Sure. Sometimes Jesus heals people without being anywhere near them. But with the background we just saw from Leviticus, can you see the power in Jesus's touch? Here's an individual and no one has touched him for weeks or maybe months or years. How would you feel if you were this leper? What does it mean to have Jesus touch you? Jesus isn't worried about ritual impurity. He's worried about love, compassion, and the person who is right in front of him. To me, the phrase, Jesus touched him, is a reminder that Christ isn't afraid to enter the messiness of our lives. He will reach in with healing. After curing the leper, Jesus went to Capernaum. Some of us may not have heard a lot about Capernaum. We know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, and was crucified at Jerusalem. But do we know Capernaum? Capernaum is one of my favorite places to visit in the Holy Land. It became Christ's home base after he left Nazareth. Matthew 9 refers to Capernaum as Jesus' own city. I think it's an important city to know, especially because he apparently had a home there. In Mark chapter 2, verse 1, the King James Version says, Christ was in the house. But if you look at the footnote, it says, at home. The home might have been Jesus' own house, or perhaps more likely, Peter's house. Biblical archaeologists have discovered a home in Capernaum that appears to have been the home of Peter. Within a couple of decades after Christ's death, this specific house ceased being used as a living space and instead became a gathering place for early Christians. Capernaum was a small town, so whether it was that specific house or somewhere near there, when you visit Capernaum today, you're walking where Jesus walked, in the same place where he performed many miracles. I mention this to remind us that as we read about Jesus, we are reading about things that really happened. Capernaum was a real place. There was a real house where Jesus lived, and the miracles Christ performed really happened. Let's go back to Mark chapter 2, where it says Jesus was at home. For our purposes, let's assume it's Peter's home. In Mark chapter 2, verse 2, we read, So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in the front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. You know what's going to happen next, right? They're going to come through the roof. And I want to pause for a minute and point out a lesson. A lot of people come to Jesus through the front door, but not everyone does. These people come through the roof. Zacchaeus will climb a sycamore tree. There are lots of ways to approach Jesus, and your way might be a little unique. That's okay. We read, And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. Sometimes we read this account and think, wow, I love the faith of chopping up the roof to lower their friend down. This is great. But what if it was your roof? Can you imagine Peter listening to Jesus? And he's like, oh yes, amen, I love that. And then there's a thud, thud. Peter looks up and then boom, there's a big hole in your roof. And Peter's like, oh, I just fixed that last month. Or what does Jesus feel? Have you ever been a guest in someone's house and you broke their toilet or something and you feel terrible? Does Jesus look at Peter and say, ooh, I'm really sorry. Actually, I don't think Jesus is worried about the roof. In verse 5, we read, Jesus saw their faith. I want to highlight two different words here. First, Jesus saw their faith. Jesus didn't see that they had wrecked the roof. He didn't say, hey, you're disrupting my speech, you vandals. He saw the good. He saw their faith. I also want to highlight the word there. He saw their 
faith. Not just the faith of the person he was going to heal, but the faith of the friends who made the effort to put a hole in the roof and lower their friend down. This is a powerful insight for those of us who are hoping for a miracle for somebody we love. Jesus saw their faith, and he will see your faith as well. You and I can exercise our faith on behalf of friends just like the people did in Mark 2. After Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine own house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed. They were all amazed. What a powerful story of healing. Let's go to another day in Capernaum. We're jumping ahead to Mark chapter 5. Jesus has been busy. He performs a major miracle at the beginning of Mark 5 that we'll come back to shortly. Then he travels on the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Notice the setting in verse 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, meaning to Capernaum, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. So Christ has just gotten off the boat. Maybe he's tired and thinking, I can't wait to go back to my house. Peter's patched up the roof. I think I'll take a little nap and relax a bit. But the people start crowding around him. Have you ever had an experience where you need some downtime, but multiple people want your attention? I know I have, and sometimes I want to say, whoa, I need a little bit of space. I wonder if Jesus ever felt that way. If he did, he didn't show it on this occasion, because in the next verse, a leader of the synagogue named Jairus came up to him. When he saw Jesus, Jairus fell at his feet. Now, note that posture. We'll see it again. And begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Jesus went with him. Christ might have had some other plans or things he wanted to do, but he was willing to put those things aside and walk with somebody who was struggling. I love that phrase, Jesus went with him. Now at this point in the story, I want to introduce one of Mark's techniques. My friend Matt Gray loves to call this the Markin sandwich. Basically, a Markin sandwich is when Mark will start telling us a story, switch to a second story, and then come back to the original story. If you look carefully at Mark and Sandwiches, you can often find some insights that you would otherwise miss if you only looked at the stories in isolation. We'll see only one Mark and Sandwich today, but we'll look at more in future classes. In this case, the Mark and Sandwich starts with Jesus going to help the daughter of Jairus. Then he's going to be interrupted by a woman, and then the narrative will go back to Jairus. As Jesus is walking along to heal Jairus' daughter, a woman touches him. Mark recounts, Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Just like lepers were ritually unclean, so too were menstruating women. It's not clear exactly what this woman's medical condition was, but her persistent bleeding would have made her constantly impure. And anybody who touched her or anything she touched became impure. If this woman was married, her husband could have easily used this as grounds for divorce. It seems likely that for 12 years, she's been in forced quarantine. What a horrible position to be in. What does Jesus do when the woman touches him? The New Living Translation of Mark chapter 5 verse 30 says, Jesus turned around. Again, we see that Jesus is willing to stop what he's doing to address somebody with an immediate need. You and I might feel at times like we're falling behind as we try to walk with the Savior. If that's ever the case, Jesus turns around. He will reach towards us. Now, the woman was frightened. She didn't want to admit what she had done. She was probably worried that Jesus could be upset. She had the audacity to touch him, transferring her uncleanliness to him. 
But Jesus wasn't worried about ritual impurity. He cared about her. Mark recounts that the woman came and fell down before him. Did you notice that? Just like Jairus, she fell down at Christ's feet and told him all the truth. Her public confession is a blessing because then Jesus publicly says, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Capernaum is a small town with perhaps a thousand people. It's not like the woman's condition is a secret, but by publicly healing her, Jesus now announces to everyone she's no longer excluded from the community. He's taking someone on the margins and bringing her into the center. That's what Jesus does. Also, did you notice how Christ addressed her? He called her daughter. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus calls somebody his daughter. Can you feel the tenderness in the scene? With a brief exchange and a measure of faith, this woman is brought into the family of Christ. Now, this is a beautiful moment for everyone, except for who? Jairus, right? He's like, okay, my daughter is dying. Thank you. Glad you're healed. Let's go. Maybe you're not as impatient as I am, but if I were Jairus, I might be getting frustrated thinking, hey, you've had this sickness for 12 years. Okay, we'll come back. You can wait one more day. While Jesus was still speaking to the woman, some people came from Jairus' house and said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jesus is having a beautiful conversation with the woman, but now Jairus is crushed. As soon as Jesus heard the messengers from Jairus' house, he turned back to Jairus and said, Do not fear, only believe. What a message for each of us. And what an example of individual love and concern. I marvel at how Jesus can focus on Jairus, then give his full attention to the woman, and turn it back to Jairus when needed. At this point, Jesus goes with Peter, James, and John to Jairus' home, where people are already mourning the daughter's death. When Jesus announces that he will heal her, the people laugh at him. But Jesus tells the girl to arise, and Mark tells us, straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years. Let's consider these two miracles together. How does sandwiching the miracles of Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood add to our understanding as opposed to if they were separated? Perhaps one lesson is that Jesus stops along the way to serve. Sometimes we can get tunnel vision in our gospel service and forget to help others along the way. Christ stops what he's doing to serve Jairus and then stops what he's doing to help the woman. It's also interesting to note that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. Her whole life comprised the sickness of the woman. Maybe this contrast helps us see that some healings come fast and some healings take time. The woman has struggled for 12 years while this little girl presumably has been having a great life. Her sickness is relatively brief compared to what the woman experiences. We see the same thing today. Some people find quick healing, but others struggle for a long period of time. Another sandwich connection is that Jairus is a wealthy man. The woman with the issue of blood is a poor woman. Jesus is no respecter of persons. He is ready to help all people. In addition, do you remember how both Jairus and the woman with an issue of blood fell down at the feet of Jesus? That's a powerful example for each of us. Do we feel the same sense of worship? Consider a few of the phrases we've highlighted in these healing miracles. Jesus touched him. Jesus saw their faith. Jesus went with him. Jesus turned around. What's the message for you personally? Let's turn to some nature miracles. One evening after a long day of teaching, the Savior and his disciples got in a boat to sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We read a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
Think about those words from the disciples. Teacher, do you not care? Do we ever feel the same way? Maybe we're going through a really hard time and we think, God, Jesus, are you asleep? Don't you care about what I'm going through? It's a huge challenge to feel like God isn't there when we need him. But of course, Jesus did care and he was in control. He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. The problem that terrified the disciples did not worry Jesus. You and I might be frightened about our future, but Jesus is not asleep. He tells us, why are you afraid? He has the power to bring calm into our lives, even in the middle of great storms. But there's even more to this story. As Timothy Keller writes, Mark is intentionally recapping the Jonah episode. He uses nearly identical words and phrases. Both Jesus and Jonah are in a boat. Both are in storms described in similar terms. Both boats are filled with others who are terrified of death. Both groups wake the sleeping prophets angrily, rebuking them. Both storms are miraculously calmed and the companions saved. And both stories conclude with the men in the boats more terrified after the storm is stilled than they were before. Every feature is the same, with one rather large apparent exception. Jonah is sacrificed into the storm, thrown into the deep, satisfying the wrath of God so the others will be saved from it. But Jesus is not. Or are the accounts really different at that point? No, they are not. As Jesus says in Matthew 12, 41, he is the ultimate Jonah who was thrown into the ultimate deep of eternal justice for us. How ironic it is that in Mark 4, the disciples ask, teacher, don't you care if we drowned? They believe he is going to sleep on them in their hour of greatest need. Actually, it's the other way around. In the garden of Gethsemane, they will go to sleep on him. They will truly abandon him. And yet he loves them to the end. See, Jonah was thrown overboard for his own sin, but Jesus is thrown into the ultimate storm for our sin. Jesus was able to save the disciples from the storm because he was thrown into the ultimate storm. In other words, this nature miracle points to the ultimate miracle. Another nature miracle I want to highlight is the feeding of the multitudes, which is the only miracle that the mortal Jesus performs in each gospel account. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Imagine you're one of the disciples, and you've never seen Christ feed multitudes before. You might be a little incredulous. The disciples replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. But that's enough for Jesus to multiply what they have and feed 5,000 men, plus the women and children who are present. We can glean many lessons from this miracle. One of my favorites is that Jesus can take our few loaves and fish and turn them into something amazing. Another insight comes from Elder Brent H. Nielsen, who pointed out that even after all the people were filled, there were still leftovers. He said, after the Savior fed 5,000, he asked his disciples to gather up the remaining fragments, the leftovers, which filled 12 baskets. One lesson we can learn from that occasion is this. He could feed 5,000 and there were leftovers. The Savior's redeeming and healing power can cover any sin, wound, or trial, no matter how large or difficult, and there are leftovers. His grace is sufficient. Let's look at another lesson from this miracle. 
In Matthew 14, Jesus Christ fed 5,000 men plus women and children with only five loaves and two fishes. In the very next chapter, 4,000 men plus women and children were listening to Christ. The Savior said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. You would think that the disciples would say, yeah, do another miracle. But instead they respond, where will we get enough bread to feed so many people? What, we might say, have you already forgotten the previous miracle? Don't you remember the 5,000? Surely the Lord can feed 4,000. But the disciples seem to have forgotten that the Savior's power is more than sufficient. Partly because the disciples' reaction seems so unusual, some people believe that the feedings of the 5,000 and 4,000 are simply two versions of the same event. Or maybe the disciples remembered the miracle, but didn't want it to appear like they were expecting it. Another possibility is that they're like me, where sometimes I feel like there's no hope and I'm desperately praying, God, can you help me? And God says, yes, don't you remember when I helped you last month? You and I have seen miracles. Your prayers have been answered. You've received a prompting from the Holy Ghost, acted on it, and seen a miracle. You, or someone you love, has gotten a priesthood blessing and found healing. Do we remember these miracles? If we don't write them down, we can easily forget them. I don't know if you're old enough to remember a Greatest Hits CD, when your favorite artist would finally release a collection of his or her greatest hits. Sometimes I like to think of creating a Greatest Hits of our miracles. Consider writing down a list of some of the miracles you've seen. If you don't have time to write out the whole story, just write a few words to remind yourself of each miracle you've seen. I've done that in my life, and my particular miracles are what's important for our discussion, but because I've gathered them together, those miracles remind me. When it feels like my back is to the wall, I've seen God do miracles in my life, and I know he'll help me again. Let's turn to exorcisms. This is a unique type of miracle where Jesus will cast a demon out of somebody. I don't know what your experiences have been, but we don't seem to see as much of this in the modern world as we do healings of the sick. In fact, sometimes people look at the descriptions of exorcisms in the gospel accounts and think, maybe that person had epilepsy or a different disease, but back then they would say, he's possessed by a demon. That's possible. It's also clear that in some instances in the gospel accounts, evil spirits are inhabiting a person. Let's look at one of these accounts in Mark 5. This is what happens just before Jesus arrives at Capernaum and met Jairus. In verse 2, we read that after traveling across the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Did you notice the repetition? No one could restrain him. No one had the strength to subdue him. Jesus was about to do something that nobody could do. Continuing, we read, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran toward him. Think about this scene for a moment. You're Jesus. You get out of the boat, and this guy who looks really scary comes running towards you. What would you do? I'd probably say, lock the door, kids. Roll up the windows. Let's keep on going. But in verse 9, Jesus asked the man, What is your name? I love how Jesus sees past what might cause others to turn away and instead reaches out. Tell me about yourself. Now, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that the next time you're walking down a dark alley and some scary person comes to you, you should say, hey, what's your name? That's not the lesson. Sister Craig articulates the lesson saying, Jesus Christ sees people deeply. He sees individuals, their needs, and who they can become. Where others saw fishermen, sinners, or publicans, Jesus saw disciples. 
Where others saw a man possessed by devils, Jesus looked past the outward distress, acknowledged the man, and healed him. Even in our busy lives, we can follow the example of Jesus and see individuals, their needs, their faith, their struggle, and who they can become. In this case, when Jesus says, what's your name? The evil spirits respond, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged Jesus, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. In verse 16 we read, Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. Perhaps we can relate to their concern. If these were your 2,000 pigs that died, you'd be really upset. But what happened to the man who was healed? As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused. Isn't that interesting? This man wanted to do something righteous. Jesus, I want to join your team. And Jesus says, no. We talked in an earlier class about the messianic secret. Usually Jesus will say, don't tell anyone you've been healed, but this is an exception. Jesus says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. One powerful lesson from this healing is that even when we have a righteous desire, like getting in the boat to follow Jesus, sometimes Jesus says, no, I don't need you doing that part of my work. I need you doing something else. This man didn't get the mission he wanted, but he took the mission Jesus gave him. Another lesson we learned from the exorcism miracles is that Jesus has power over Satan. One way we can view Christ's exorcisms is that they show he is establishing his kingdom by conquering Satan. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus said, If I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come among you. Sometimes it may seem like the forces of evil cannot be defeated, but through Jesus Christ, they can be, they have, and they will be. Let's turn to one final miracle. Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. As we discussed in a previous class, in the Gospel according to John, there are seven signs or miracles, each of which reveals something about Jesus Christ. This seventh miracle in John, the culmination of Christ's miracles, does just that. In John chapter 11, we read, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. We met Mary and Martha in a previous class in Luke chapter 10. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, Behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Already we see an important insight. Heavenly Father and Jesus view things differently than we do. The sisters are saying, This is terrible. And Jesus says, No, no, no. This will bring glory to God. Rather than immediately go to Lazarus's aid, Jesus waited for two days. Have you ever felt like God was delaying in blessing you? Maybe you've been praying for a miracle, hoping with all your heart, and then God does nothing. That can be really frustrating. And I'm sure it was more than just frustrating for Mary and Martha, because their brother Lazarus died. We read, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Some Jews had a tradition that when a person died, his or her spirit lingered near the body for three days. If Jesus hadn't delayed and raised Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for only two days, it would have still been a miracle, but not as impressive because people may have thought Lazarus' spirit had just been hanging around anyways. 
Some people might have said with Miracle Max, well, Lazarus was only mostly dead. But now that Lazarus has been dead for four days, he's definitely fully dead. There's no possible way Jesus could raise him. Or at least that's what the people thought. Perhaps this helps to see why Jesus said the sickness would bring the glory of God. Now Christ will have the opportunity to show his power in a way that has never been shown. As Christ comes to Bethany, he has two separate interactions, one with Martha and one with Mary. In John chapter 11, we read, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at the tomb. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Can you imagine yourself there as Martha? Jesus says to you, I am the resurrection. If you believe in me, you will never die. Do you believe this? Think for a moment about that question. Do you believe? Jesus doesn't say, do you have a firm testimony or do you know? Knowledge isn't required, only belief. Consider this scriptural pattern. Jesus said, as thou hast believed, so be it done to thee. Jesus said unto the blind men, believe ye that I am able to do this. Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible. Whoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Do you believe? That question unlocks one of the most powerful testimonies in all the New Testament. Martha responds, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Take a moment and let Martha's testimony resonate in your heart. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Martha returns to her sister and says, Jesus is looking for you. When Mary came to Jesus, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's interesting that that's the exact same thing Martha said to Jesus. But even though their conversation starts the same, it ends differently. Instead of a long conversation, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Jesus wept. The different ways in which Jesus approaches the two women is beautiful. Sometimes if you're experiencing heartache, you need to talk about it. Sometimes you just need someone to cry with you. Martha needed someone to talk to. Mary needed someone to cry with her. Jesus responds to individual needs. Why did Jesus weep? He knows that within a short time, Lazarus will be raised from the dead. I think Jesus weeps because he feels what Mary is feeling and he weeps with her. The same thing is true for you and me. Jesus understands our emotions and empathizes with us. So Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and tells the people to move the stone away from the tomb. Note Martha's response. She says, Lord, already there is a stench because he's been dead for four days. She had just expressed her faith in Christ, but now she was worried about the smell of Lazarus's body. As James Martin points out, like most of us, Martha grapples with both faith, yes, I believe, and doubt, or at least confusion. There is a stench. You and I might find ourselves flipping back and forth between faith and fear, but we can have confidence in Christ. Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus demonstrates his statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus can conquer anything, even death. I started today by sharing a miracle I've seen. 
I want to conclude with one more, a miracle that involves divine delay. While I was still in college, I felt inspired to write a book answering commonly asked questions by the youth of the church, such as, why should I wait until I'm 16 to date? Or, what does the Holy Ghost feel like? For a full year, I spent every spare minute working on my manuscript. I even came up with a great title, Is Kissing Okay? and Other Questions LDS Teens Want Answered. You know that the teenage version of you would have loved to read a book with that title. I sent it to a publisher, and they rejected it. I fasted, prayed, worked harder, and submitted it to another publisher. They rejected it. I fasted, prayed again, made more revisions, and submitted it to a third publisher, but that didn't work out either. By this point, there was only one more Latter-day Saint publisher I could try. They were a really small publishing company, but I prayed and prayed and sent them my manuscript. The good news was they loved it. The bad news, they had just signed a contract to publish a similar book, and so they couldn't work with me. I was bitterly disappointed. I had invested hundreds of hours into this book, but all my efforts had been in vain. Or had they? Flash forward a few years. Through divine design, an opportunity presented itself for me to record a talk on CD for Deseret Book, which led to further publications. I met Anthony Sweat, and the two of us co-authored Why and How, which were books that answered questions from Latter-day Saint teenagers. Much of the prose I had written earlier made it into these books. I felt so happy. The books were much better than I could have produced on my own, and my publisher's marketing capabilities dramatically extended their reach. Shortly before How was published, I happened to meet one of the authors of the Q&A book that had been published by that fourth publisher. I mentioned to him that I had desperately wanted to publish my book with this publisher, but that he had beaten me to it. You're lucky, he told me. For reasons outside of his control, his book hadn't been as successful as he'd hoped. He said the unsold copies of my book are in a warehouse, but they're completely invisible to the public. The warehouse was close to my house, so I went and bought a copy. It was a beautiful book, well-written and designed. It was unfortunate that it hadn't been more successful. As I held the book, I was filled with gratitude that things hadn't worked out the way I had initially hoped. My every prayer had once been that this book would be accepted by the small publisher. At the time, the rejection was extremely disappointing. But what a tender mercy. Because my first book wasn't accepted, many other doors later opened. Several years have passed since that conversation I had with the other author, and I started to wonder if my happy ending came at his expense. I reached out to him and asked about the intervening years. He responded by writing, For years I had wanted to speak and publish. I did both, but I learned that I don't love traveling to speak, and I don't find the satisfaction in publishing that I thought I would. He went on to tell me that for the past eight years, he's worked as an adjunct professor in community, family, and addiction sciences, in addition to his full-time job. He said, I love working with addicts in recovery. My experiences teaching on campus have changed my life in wonderful ways. I don't know that I would have accepted this position to teach if I had been successful at publishing and speaking. Each of our experiences had led to initial disappointments that were extremely painful and prolonged. The fact that they had happy endings doesn't take away the sorrow we felt on the journey. However, those challenges ultimately resulted in beautiful experiences. God works in mysterious ways, and sometimes what feels like a painful delay is God's power being manifest in our lives. If you are in the middle of a divine delay right now, I urge you to be confident and trust in God. He is going to help you, and He has not forgotten you. He has worked miracles before, and He will work miracles in your life. If things seem dark or like it's already too late, remember Christ's words to Jairus. Be not afraid. Only believe. You will see miracles. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It makes a difference. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. 
These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash seekingjesus. We hope to see you there.